0: so for those who are visitors here, as you've already been told, the church is going through a series in Psalm 23. There are six verses in Psalm 23. Uh, five of them sound truly wonderful. They're all about green pastures and still waters and refreshed souls and God as our shepherd. And then God is presented as a host of an enormous banquet where there's feasting and honor and blessings and love. So five of those verses are just wonderful. It's such a shame that David thought to include verse (laughs) 4. The only sort of dark point in the whole of the psalm so Rick, here's a dice, and uh, you can roll it, and you've got a chance in six of getting verse four. <laughs> Guess what comes up? Never, never stand behind me when I choose uh, the queue for uh, the, the uh, what do you call them, supermarket uh, <laughs> checkout or, uh, or the, the passport control, uh, because I will always... Pick the wrong one. Verse 4. However, I actually secretly think that I've been lucky. That this is the best verse in the whole psalm to be able to speak about. And I'm really looking forward to sharing that. If you've got a Bible, you can open it at Psalm 23. If you haven't, just... Google Psalm 23 and add NLT after that because I'm going to read this from the New Living Translation. The Lord is my shepherd. I have all that I need. He lets me rest in green meadows. He leads me beside peaceful streams. He renews my strength. He guides me along right paths, bringing honor. To his name. Even when I walk through the darkest valley, I'll not be afraid, for you are close beside me. Your rod and your staff protect and comfort me. You prepare a feast for me in the presence of my enemies. You honor me by anointing my head with oil. My cup overflows with blessings. Surely, Your goodness and unfailing love will pursue me all the days of my life and I will live in the house of the Lord forever. Even when I walk through the darkest valley, I will not be afraid for you are close beside me. Dark places can be scary places. Fear is always the risk. But finding God in the darkness changes everything. There is a tyrant, but it's not God. It's fear in these situations. There's never a sufficient answer to the question why. So it's better to find a better question to ask. Mushrooms are not the only things that grow well in dark places, as we're going to discover. So a few things about dark valleys. Dark valleys are universal. It's a universal human experience. David says, when I walk through the darkest valley, not if. It's when, not if. Right now, every single person in this room Can either look back on a dark valley, is currently walking through such a place, or can anticipate coming across one before too long. It's a universal human experience. I'm not here talking about the kind of pickles that we get ourselves into through our own human folly and rebelliousness. I'm here talking about something else. Those unintended, unforeseen, unpredictable times in our lives where dark valleys seem to be the order of the day. We've heard somebody talk about that so eloquently just a few minutes ago. It happens to us all. That unexpected accident, and you get the call from the A&E department that your child has been knocked down. Proof once again that another month has gone by and you've not been able to get pregnant as you'd hoped. News from your dad that his blood tests suggest he may have cancer. An unexpected redundancy just a month after you took out a mortgage. These are part and parcel of the human condition, are they not? I remember well just a few years ago settling down with my English mate. You need to understand for the purposes of this story that I'm Welsh. To watch the England versus Wales annual rugby match in the Six Nations. The beer was chilling in the fridge. Liz had gone to visit her mum, uh, knowing what the afternoon was going to hold. and, and um, The teams had just run out onto the pitch when the phone rang, and it was one of those moments. And at the other end of the phone was a serious-sounding sister from the accident and emergency department in Hereford to say that uh, my wife and her mother had been airlifted to the casualty department from a smash uh, on the road. Liz was in my car, taking her mum out for the afternoon for a drive and a tea, and uh, at a junction had been hit in the side by a van at speed. The air ambulance had been called, she'd had to be cut out of the car. The telly went off, my mate said, I'll drive you, And we set off for the hospital, not knowing at all what we would find. It was one of those moments when you can feel the kind of icy fingers of fear begin to creep around your heart. Now, as you can see, on this occasion, the outcome was a joyous one. If you look carefully at Liz's left hand, you'll see a slightly crooked finger. Uh, That's just a reminder to us of that whole episode and of God's faithfulness and goodness. Uh, Her mum was fine, and I even got a replacement car. (laughs) Uh, It's the good. But the outcomes are not always like that, are they? It's what we do in the midst of those times. It's what we can learn along the way that I want to explore with you this morning, just for a few moments. The tyrant who wants to get hold of our hearts at such times is fear. Will we ever get pregnant? Will we lose the house? Will my dad ever meet his grandchildren? Those sorts of fears that begin to creep in unwelcome, and we find ourselves asking the question, why? Why would a good and all-powerful God permit this sort of thing? Is he really there? Which of us hasn't had that thought at such times? Is he really there? And if he is, is he really good? Or is he a malign God? Or just a, an impotent God? Unable to intervene. Let me play you a short YouTube clip with a chap called Chris Stefanik speaking. He's a, a, a Catholic evangelist, uh, and I think this is worth hearing. First one, please.
1: Everybody has to suffer in life. Nobody gets a free pass on that one. And you know what? For a lot of people, that's the greatest obstacle they have to faith. If there's really a God, why does He let us suffer? Maybe He's not there. Maybe He just doesn't care. Now, sometimes our suffering is caused by other people's selfishness or by our own bad choices. And we have this capacity for love. That also means that the opposite extreme is a possibility, too. We have the ability to kill each other. We have the ability to abandon each other. I mean, we don't want to blame God for everything. You know, like, God, if you're really there, why are children starving in Haiti? I think God's looking down from heaven saying, I was about to ask you that question. Sometimes, though, sometimes our suffering is not caused by, by our bad choices. Sometimes our suffering is just caused by the fact that we have to deal with the frailty of our human condition. We're not living in the Garden of Eden anymore. We have to deal with death. We've got to deal with things like cancer. We've got to deal with things like tsunamis. They claim 10,000 lives. And what then? You know, a lot of times that, that kind of experience is what brings about not just that intellectual problem with faith, but that, that gut-wrenching question. Why? God, are you really there? I think of Lazarus' sister Mary in Scripture. After Lazarus died, she ran up to Jesus and said, Lord, if you were here, this wouldn't have happened. Now, there's good theological explanations for why a God of love would let us suffer. He doesn't cause us to suffer, but He lets us suffer. But only with a plan to bring about some greater good. Even if that's a good that we only see from the perspective of eternity. See, God's the author of life. And He knows how the story ends. And if He ties the whole story together, man, a good ending redeems every up and down and twist and turn that happens in every chapter along the way. The ultimate example of God letting bad things happen to bring about some greater good is the death of His Son. He let Jesus die on a cross. That's not because He abandoned mankind. Christians call the day that Jesus died Good Friday, even though it's the worst evil imaginable. The killing of God in the flesh. Yet we call it Good Friday because it's the source of the greatest blessing we can imagine Easter Sunday and our victory over sin and death and despair. It's because of Good Friday that we know that the grave doesn't get the final word. But you know what? All those theological explanations, they only go so far. You know, when you're experiencing profound suffering, you're not necessarily going to be thinking, well, Chris said God writes the story from beginning to end, sees the whole thing, big picture, blah, blah, blah. You know? You know sometimes when you're in intense pain, that's all you can see. You know what helps me at a time like that? I look to the cross. See, the central image of Christianity is not a guy saying, hey, come follow me, and everything's going to be easy all the time. You know, even if you don't believe in God, the cross says one thing really clearly. Life is really difficult sometimes. But as a Christian, I can never look at my God and say, you don't know what this is like to deal with pain, to deal with suffering, to watch your body fall to pieces in front of you, to have people who are supposed to be there for you all take off. Because He does. See, Jesus never promised us freedom from suffering. What He promises us is His presence with us in our suffering. What He promised us is that because we can unite our suffering with His on the cross and offer up to God for the salvation of the world is that pain can have a purpose. What he promised us is the hope of Easter Sunday and that death doesn't have the final word. What he promised us is an example of heroic love in the middle of our suffering. See, he didn't suffer so we wouldn't have to. He suffered so we'd know how to. So even when you're in those darkest moments of life where you want to just cry out, God, where are you? You know where he is? He's on the cross right next to you saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So you never have to say those words alone.
0: Thank you. God never promised us freedom from suffering. What he promises us is his presence with us in our suffering. We get to find God. In the darkness. And that, David says, transforms the darkness. We find purpose in the pain. So if dark valleys are universal, they're also transformational. They can produce in us a new level of intimacy. One of the things I love about the 23rd Psalm is the way things change when you get to verse 4. Up until then, David is describing God as He. He leads me beside the waters. He lets me lie down in green pastures. It's He, He, He. But in verse 4, when He hits the dark valleys, it's you. It's you. These seasons in our lives have a way of sharpening our intimacy with our Father. Last Saturday, uh, I joined a group of people on what's called the Lakeland 3000s Sunset Challenge. Okay, so the, opportunity, the, the, the aim of the day was to climb all the hills in the lakes um, between sunrise and sunset that are more than 3000 feet. There's any four of them. It was a gorgeous morning. We hit the slopes at 5 o'clock in the morning and it was already shirt sleeves weather. It was wonderful. There was a guide, but you didn't need him because from the bottom you could see the top. And the whole morning was like that. The first two peaks went flashing by. I don't think I ever made the acquaintance of the guide in that time. But then everything changed. The wind got up. A front came in. The clouds came down. The wind started to howl and it rained and it rained for six hours. You couldn't see more than a few feet in front of you. I tell you what, I never let that guide out of my sight. I didn't want to find myself on striding edge, unable to see the guide, because I know what's on either side of that pathway. (coughs) When the sun is shining, and you're in overdrive, and all is well, We can sometimes get a little distant. We can sometimes get a bit remote, can't we? Thank God for those times in our lives which force us to find him afresh, that close the gap, that bring us closer, help us discover why he's there. David says, your rod and staff comfort me. I've often wondered about that part of this verse. The staff referred to there really is what we perhaps now see stylized for us in a bishop's crook, supposedly a shepherd's staff with a curled end such that the shepherd could actually reach out and just pull that wandering sheep away from the edge of the precipice. That's a comfort says David. That's such a comfort to know that I've got a shepherd who will do that in the midst of the moments when I can't see, when I can't hear the sound of the wind and the rain, the thickness of the cloud. I'm just putting one foot hopefully in front of the other the knowledge that my shepherd is with me and he has a staff and he will use that to keep me He'll protect me. He'll guide me. Because he's right there in the midst of it, he won't let me slip. (coughs) Excuse me. David understood for himself that dilemma. Sometimes we're tempted at such moments To let the why question, unanswered as it invariably is, become a cause of offense. Why has God let me down? Why isn't he there to deliver me from this situation? Why has this happened? And at the very moment when we need to be sticking close to God, (coughs) excuse me, what happens is that we take an offence with God. And at such moments, the only comfort to be found is in the sense of self-pity. But it's a miserable comfort. It coexists with anger and offence in our hearts and it leads us only off the track further and further. And David, thank you so much. David was at risk of that on various occasions, as many of his psalms show us. I've just turned over the page to Psalm 31, and and here he is in one such. I'm in distress... Tears blur my eyes, my body and soul are withering away, I'm dying from grief, my years are shortened by sadness, sin has drained my strength, I'm wasting away from within, I'm scorned by all my enemies, despised by my neighbours, even my friends are afraid to come near me, when they see me on the street they run the other way, I'm ignored as if I were dead, as if I were a broken pot, I've heard the many rumours about me and I'm surrounded by terror, my enemies conspire against me, plotting to take my life... And then he stops. He can see where he's going. And then that shepherd's crook just gently catches him and pulls him in close. And there's a but right in the middle of Psalm 31. But, but, I am trusting you, Lord, saying, you are my God. My future is in your hands. Rescue me. From those who hunt me down relentlessly, and on it goes. Hope in God, we were reminded about by Jeremy a little earlier. He finds us in these moments. Perhaps he's waiting for those moments, for us to come to our senses. C.S. Lewis is famous for many sayings, but this is one of them. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks to us in our conscience, but shouts in our pays, pains. It's his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. God is not punishing you at such moments. He's rousing us. He wants us to discover his closeness. He was there all the time. We just drifted when the sun was shining And all was beautiful in the garden. And now we know we need him. Our pains are like a megaphone. He's with you. For your good, be rescued. A new level of intimacy, a new level of trust. David says, I will not be afraid. For some, that choice is a very difficult one, a very telling choice, a choice not just for a day or a week or a month, but for a very long time. Could we have the next clip, please? Um, Johnny Erickson is known to some of you. Pick this up at at two minutes, 30 seconds, will you, into uh, into that overall clip,
2: thank you. As I was preparing to head off to college, my sister Kathy invited me to go to the beach for a swim. I swam out to this raft, athlete that I was, I didn't even touch bottom, hoisted myself up onto it and then took this really stupid dive into what ended up being extremely shallow water. I snapped my head back when I hit bottom and it crunched my fourth cervical vertebrae, severing my spinal cord. There I was lying face down in the water, desperately hoping that my sister Kathy would please notice that I had not surfaced from my dive. Unbeknownst to me, her back was turned to me. She didn't even see me take that dive. But a crab bit her toe. And it so startled her that she quick turned around in the water and screamed to scream at me, Johnny, watch out for crabs. And when she did, she saw my blonde hair floating on the surface. I was face down, ready to drown. She came swimming quickly, pulled me up out of the water. And I never, I never was so grateful for fresh air she saved me but for what purpose for what reason because now lying there in a hospital doctors told me I was going to have to sit down for the rest of my life as a quadriplegic without use of my legs or or even my hands my hands don't work and I remember thinking God is this is this your idea of an answer to a prayer to be drawn closer to you if it is you're never gonna be trusted with another one of my prayers again I mean, I'm a new Christian, how could you have taken me so seriously? I sank into deep depression. I remember there were wonderful Christian friends who came to the hospital and they encouraged me. And one Bible verse they shared was from Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 11, where God says, I know the plans I have for you, plans not to harm you, but to help you, plans to prosper you and to give you a hopeful future. God, you you mean you plan not to harm me? Well, what do you call quadriplegia, huh? What's that all about? As I read that verse and the context around it, I realized something, that when God said that, he was saying it to his children who were being dragged away into captivity by, by the Babylonians, they were going to exile, they were going into slavery, they had decades in front of them of hard, awful suffering. And I began to see that God's plans for a hopeful future for me was not necessarily jumping up, dancing, kicking, doing aerobics, running, walking, getting back use of my arms and my legs, no. God's plans for me go far deeper, a deeper healing, a precious healing of the soul. Because as I was pushed into the arms of God every morning, and that's the truth, even to this day, Don't be thinking I'm an expert at quadriplegia. But as it was then in the hospital and as it is today, every morning I wake up saying, Jesus, I can't do this thing called life. Please help me. Please show up, give me your smile, give me your strength because I can't make it through the day. And because I go to God with that earnest dependency and, and requirement of His grace every single day, I take that back. No, every single moment I experience the sweetest, most precious, most intimate union with Jesus Christ. So in Jeremiah 29, when God says he won't harm us, doesn't mean the body. doesn't mean our circumstances. He's not going to do anything to harm our soul. Yes, our body may get harmed, but it will somehow serve to enrich our soul. In closing, let me just say that quadriplegia 46 years of it, that's a long time. I deal with chronic pain. I, um, I had breast cancer a couple of years ago. And I remember, I remember as my husband was driving me home in the van from chemotherapy one day, we were talking about how suffering is like little splashovers of hell, kind of like waking us up out of our spiritual slumber. And then we were pulled in the driveway and he said, well, then what do you think splashovers of heaven are? Are they those easy breezy bright times where everything's going your way, where you have health? And we said, no, Splashovers of heaven are finding Jesus in your splash over of hell. And to find Jesus in your hell is ecstasy beyond compare. And I wouldn't trade it for any amount of walking in this world.
0: I found that a very moving testimony because he's someone who's still facing the darkest of valleys in some ways. But the splash hoses of heaven are making all the difference. A new level of trust. I will not be afraid. I will not be afraid, says David in this psalm. Even through the darkest valleys, I will not yield to fear. I'm going to keep making those good choices. Some of you will recognize David Watson. This is an old picture of someone who was a famous evangelist when I was a student that long ago, okay? Uh, He was a Cambridge graduate. He then uh, was ordained into the Anglican ministry. Uh, Shortly after that, he moved to York and took on a church with just a half a dozen or so uh, elderly folk in it. Uh, St. Michael the Belfry, right next door to the the minister in York, and built that church, as some of you will know, uh, until it was a thousand strong, uh, a remarkable ministry. Uh, In the midst of that, he was diagnosed with stage four cancer of the bowel. Um, He had surgery. Uh, He made a remarkable recovery from the surgery. He was able to get back to work and ministry, but hanging over him, Uh, was this sense that actually he already had secondaries in his liver, and he was being told that, as such, he probably wouldn't survive beyond a year. And he wrote a wonderful book, a book called Fear No Evil, in the course of that year. I do recommend it uh, to you. It's a wonderful, humble, but heroic insight into a man of God seeking to come to terms with his mortality, with the frustrations, he was at the height of his powers in a sense when this diagnosis came, with the frustrations, uh, with the sense of unfulfilled vision and the possibility that God could heal him. He was a good friend of John Wimber, and Wimber and others came across at least twice from from um, California to be with him, to pray, and there was every every bit of prayer that you could have um, was given for him, and, and countless thousands around the country made it their regular prayer target to see David healed. This is a wonderful book, and he wrote the last chapter of it just a week before he went home to glory. In one chapter of that book, he describes the process from which he moved, from in, by which he moved from being willing to go, but wanting to stay to the point where he was willing to stay but looked forward so much to going to be with his creator. It's a wonderful, wonderful journey. It's the same journey that Paul describes uh, in some of his writing. I recommend it to you. I remember the very first Patient that was assigned to me as a very callow medical student. Um, her name was Sarah. She was ten years old. She'd been brought to the big London teaching hospital where I trained because of a specialist unit there. Her home was in it was in Guernsey, but uh, she she had a liver cancer, primary cancer in her liver that was killing her at the age of ten. And uh, chemotherapy was in its early days then. And she came to our hospital and the ward that I was working on and was assigned to me. She was a fearful, anxious girl. Understandably, her parents were way away, um, only able to visit at weekends and so on. She was put in a bed next to a delightful, gracious, godly uh, nun who was there for a mastectomy again for malignant reasons. And this uh, nun led Sarah to the Lord over the next week or so, the early weeks of her of her chemotherapy. And Sarah was transformed by the love of Jesus, absolutely transformed. So much so that people would come from all over the hospital, uh, students as well as doctors and nurses, just to sit at her bedside and drink in the confidence of this little girl who was hoping to be healed, but happy to go home to her newfound good shepherd. She lasted many, 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 many more months than she was predicted, and I was no longer working on that ward when eventually she died, but I met her mum in the corridor a week or two after she passed away uh, and said, describe what happened, and she said, well, Sarah fell into um, a coma towards the end, and for two days uh, she didn't open her eyes, lift her head off the pillow, or say anything. And then she said, we were all gathered around the bedside. Uh, Sarah had a a brother and a mum and dad when she opened her eyes and sat up and she looked us all in the face and she said I'd like to lead us in the Lord's Prayer now she hadn't spoken for two days and as clear as anything and word perfect she led them all in the Lord's Prayer and then she let her head fall back on the pillow and she looked across to the door she was in a side room looked across to the door and she said to her family ah, here he is now and she reached out her hand and went just like that I've never forgotten that F- firsts. that was the first time I'd seen someone die and firsts leave an impression don't they but it brought home to me that there's nothing to fear here there's nothing to fear here if God will heal us let him heal us yes Let's reach out for that. A new strength in weakness, a new passion in prayer. I had so much to say, but I'm going to have to cut it short. Let me just end with this. I don't want us to be passive in the face of crises of this order. I want us to learn a fresh passion in prayer. I don't want us to be intimidated by the size of the challenge because Jesus gave us every reason to think that prayer makes a difference. I think it was William Temple who said, when I pray, coincidences happen, and when I don't, they don't. Prayer does make a difference. Paul said to the Christians in Ephesus, isn't, didn't he? When you're in the midst of a spiritual battle, what you need to do in order to stand is pray. Pray for me, he said. Pray for each other. Pray, pray. And when you've, when you've prayed, pray some more. A fresh passion in prayer very often emerges as a result of times in the dark valleys. How shall we Pray. Is there a guarantee that God will answer our prayers? Well, how do we handle it if he doesn't? Here's a final clip in which Amy or Ewing seeks to answer that question very briefly.
1: Thank you. Thank you so much, Amy. We're going to dive straight into some questions, and thanks to you all for making my job uh, easy by sending in so many uh, good questions. So we're going to jump straight to the top vote-getter on Pigeon Hall, and that is, why is it, that God sometimes intervenes to end suffering, and other times he does not?
3: I think that question is brilliant. That's a question I've asked um, a lot myself. If um, the argument that I'm making to you is that the reason that there's evil and suffering in the world is about our our free will, our will, how comes God sometimes appears to override that or mess with the system but doesn't do it kind of universally? And I think for Christians, and the answer to that question is rooted in Jesus' teaching about the kingdom of God. Jesus taught that in him, as he entered history, the kingdom of God had arrived on earth. But he also spoke about God's kingdom as something future. One of the things I didn't have time to touch on was that the Bible looks at suffering through the lens of the past explanation, but also through the lens of the future that there will be a day of judgment, that there will be a day of reckoning when all things are made right. And at that point... When there is a day of judgment, God will wipe tears from our eyes. There's a promise of, of ultimate, eternal comfort. I don't know if you've ever wiped tears from someone's eyes. I did it yesterday. My 10-year-old was crying because he hadn't made a particular sports team he wanted to be in. Big, fat, gigantic tears pouring down his face. It's amazingly intimate to be there to do that. As you embrace someone, that's the promise of what God will do for us at the end. But we live in this tension, which theologians called the now and the not yet. Jesus' kingdom has come, but it is also coming. So, where we see miracles, where we see divine salvations and interventions that deliver us or rescue us in some way, those are the future, that promise, that reality of eternity where all is well, breaking into the present. Now, how and why that happens is mysterious. The One thing we do know, though, is that that miracle occurring is not in any way related to our performance. There's no sense in which, okay, well, here's a really, really good Christian... And they're suffering, so because they've been extra good, or the people who prayed for them really, really prayed hard, they're going to be healed. But here's a slightly less good Christian, they're not going to be healed. It's absolutely not related to performance. But a miracle is a sign of that future reality breaking in that we're not in control of. It's a message from God to show us that this is true and real, not a badge of, well done you, you've performed well, you've got a miracle. So that's how we would understand it's in this tension of the past and the future, the now and the not yet.
0: So suffering is universal, dark valleys are universal. But dark valleys are also transformational, a new level of intimacy, a new level of trust, a new strength. Out of weakness, a new passion in prayer. And I just want to end by saying dark valleys are generally not interminable, they are temporary. They are seasons of opportunity in which we prove the faithfulness of God and grow in depth, in faith, in character, in humility in understanding and the capacity to walk with others. People don't join to our polish, they join to our pain. And one of the ways in which God redeems these seasons in our lives is by equipping us the better to understand those around us who are similarly in those dark valleys and haven't found the shepherd of our souls. I'm going to finish by reading the words of a lovely song. It's, it's written by a lady called Annie Johnson Flint. She was, in childhood, diagnosed with a dreadful uh, juvenile arthritis condition and ended her days completely crippled, bed-bound, skin breaking down everywhere, utterly dependent upon help from everybody else. But this was the beauty that those years had fashioned in her, She put it in a song. It's old-fashioned language. I make no apology for it, because it's very beautiful. After this, uh, and uh, I think we're going to finish with a song probably, but towards the end, if there are folks who would appreciate prayer, particularly if you're somebody who yourself or someone whom you love is facing perhaps that darkest of all values, the shadow of death, we'd love to pray with you. Please just find your way to the front. Uh, and anything else that God may be in speaking to you about this morning, if you'd value prayer, then there will be folks here ready to pray with you. You'll see them because of the lanyards they wear. Any song. He giveth more grace when the burdens grow greater. He sendeth more strength when the labors increase. He addeth aff- to, to added affliction, he addeth his mercy. To multiplied trials... His multiplied peace. When we have exhausted our store of endurance, when our strength has failed, ere the day is half done, when we've reached the end of our hoarded resources, our Father's full giving is only begun. His love has no limit. His grace has no measure. His power has no boundary known unto men, for out of his infinite riches in Jesus... He giveth and giveth and giveth again.